Hey, thank you for joining us today. This is Rebecca Tapia, your podcast host. If you're finding any value of this podcast, please do share it and leave a review. And also, nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. And this is not a patient-doctor relationship. It is really just a couple of people sitting around, or maybe just myself, discussing difficult topics related to aging parents. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. Just like I promised you last week, I have brought my mom on to follow on to the topic discussed of the end of life care for her aunt and my great aunt, Margie. I know that there's a lot more for me to talk about with my mom. That's like, I think that'll be at least four or five more podcasts unpacking her story about her parents, how I think about things, how she thinks about things and lots more to share. But today we are going to focus specifically on this more recent events here with her caregiving and involvement with uh, a significant elder. So I like to talk about significant elders because just as this example, this isn't all just limited to your actual biological parent. There are lots of other important people that we may end up getting involved with through the course of, of our lives. So welcome, mom. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. So you're, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to call you mom or Jackie. What would you prefer? <laughs> Whatever you think. I mean, Whatever you think. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> um, I'll just stick with Jackie. So it's less the uh, people's listening to this. That if I use the word mom over and over again, that might stir okay. some emotions. But... Right, well, and we might be talking about somebody else's mom. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll say Jackie then. Jackie. Okay. So welcome, Jackie. Thank you for being here. <laughs> and you promised ahead of time to not contradict anything I said last week. Remember? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> okay. So as I was recording last week, I had this moment in my head and I was like, oh shit, I probably should have talked to my mom before I recorded this entire episode. <laughs> and then in the middle of the, inter- the episode, <laughs> you hear me interject and say, um, maybe I should talk to my mom about this, but I still stand by my uh, recollection of how that went specifically for the parts that I was there, but I also didn't want to put words in your mouth and, um, talk about how, uh, what your experience of it was. If you don't mind, I, I remember during this journey with Margie that you talked repeatedly about how much she meant to you when you were growing up. Can you just talk about that relationship, where it came from, what you, um, how you guys became so close? Okay. Um, when I was growing up, my aunt Margie and her family uh, came out to our, they lived in the city and they came out to the country pretty much every weekend for many years. Uh, There were five of us kids and she had two daughters younger than I am, but um, they, you know, we all got together every weekend and if they didn't come out, we got together on Sunday uh, at my grandparents' house. So we saw each other a lot. And one thing sticks in my memory about Aunt Margie is when they came out, they had like a a camper on a a pickup and they stayed in the camper where it was cool. It was actually air conditioned where our house wasn't. But they would stay there and I have great memories of going out there and sitting down with them 
And she, what I loved was that she didn't talk to me like I was a child. She treated me like an adult, pretty much. I remember her question was always, what are you reading? And you know how I read. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was something that made me feel special. And I don't recall any of my other siblings doing that, like going out there just to be with them. I could be wrong, but I don't recall that happening. That made me feel really special to her. And she was such, just always kind to me, no matter what. I loved her very much. And I know um, throughout your adult life, uh, we always kind of lived in the same area and we'd have more infrequent get togethers, like family reunions and things like that. But when was it that you started getting uh, more involved in her care? Like, what, do you remember going from like, oh, I hadn't actually had her number in my phone <laughs> to, okay, wait a minute, this is um, something that's uh, coming up more frequently? Okay, yeah. Um, well, let me throw this in because it, it impacts the whole thing. Um, as you might have, you mentioned last, uh, in the last episode, her, she had two daughters. Her oldest daughter had some um, uh, handicaps, some problems. And that was always a big, um, it was a burden, I know, but I admired her because she, see, every summer she was with my cousin, at the hospital for long, long periods of time. And my cousin would be incapacitated for a long time. Uh, as the girls got older, um, her second daughter um, developed some um, men a mental illness. And so she, um, Aunt Margie had a lot to deal with. And her second daughter, though she had problems associated with her mental illness, she did um, help Aunt Margie a lot, as far as um, taking her to the hospital when she needed to go, taking her to the doctor, advocating for her. Karen always wanted to be a nurse and she wasn't able to do that. She did become a teacher. Um, and worked some as a teacher, but she always wanted to take care of people. And so she did take care of her mom. So a couple of years ago, when that daughter died very suddenly and unexpectedly, I realized at that point that Aunt Margie being divorced a long, long time ago, depended on her daughters and now she really didn't have that. Um, about the, a year before that, uh, we had moved out to a part of the city where we were very close to Aunt Margie. It would only take me a few minutes to get to her house. And I kept telling her, uh, talking to her about, hey, we're right here you need anything, give us a call, uh, just checking in with her. But I guess, I don't know if it was about a year ago that 
she really started maybe a year and a half, um, like just asking me occasionally, could I take her to the doctor's appointment or take her to get a, her COVID vaccine? And thankfully, my husband is wonderful at helping also. So sometimes he took her. Uh, it, it was difficult just moving her around because she was quite a large woman and mostly needed to be in a wheelchair if, if there was any distance or any, um, if, the, if it wasn't just flat pavement to walk in. So he was real helpful with that. So that, that was the beginning. And do you want me to stop there and let you? Oh, sure. I know, no, yeah. I, um, so part of it, one of the, when I think about how people end up getting involved with someone else, obviously there's some relationship and then sometimes there's what you've described, which is a decrement in social support. So this would have been the loss of her daughter, but sometimes it's that they're widowed or they stop driving. There's some sort of decrement. But one of the things that we always forget about as I is, I think a more, one of the most important factors is geography. It's simple distance. And we can think and say, well, the daughter is supposed to do this, or the son is supposed to do this. And a lot of the times it really comes down to the practicality of Google maps of like, well, who actually lives in that same city? And I've seen geography overcome what you would consider almost the natural laws, right? So they can have a daughter who's a healthcare professional in another state, but the son who's not a healthcare professional and lives down the street is much more involved in their care, much more, you know, kind of ground level. So um, in my mind, when I think about this topic, I always think, you know, geography ends up trumping most intentions, right? And yeah. so you, uh, you know, I, I know you didn't necessarily select that part of town just specifically because she lived there, but um, it was very convenient. Well, that that was you here. <laughs> well yes. And I have three of your grandchildren. So right. um, that was a big pool, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so going back to part of it's that simple proximity. And um, the positive thing about that is it makes it really convenient. And sometimes the difficulty with that is you're also now the most convenient person um, and the pressure you can put on yourself or the, the guilt you would have of not further participating goes back to the, well, I only live a few minutes away. You know, oh. what would it take? What would it do? And that's my whole thing here, right? Is is not coming in with a pre uh, predetermined agenda of what this should look like. It's just that conversation of how these things develop over time um, and that it starts with a couple of appointments. Um, and But when you're with somebody who has a progressive illness like she had, um, and is aging, and she was in her mid eighties by by the mid to late eighties. Um, you know, these there's sort, certain trajectories and trends that are not really known to reverse themselves. And so, what point did you start to feel tugged? And tugged to me is, you know, hey, this is infrequent. I I uh, this is easily fits in my schedule. To wait a minute, um, how, how am I going to start reconciling the needs that are starting to exceed? the time or resources I have to do it? Well, during this past year, her health was declining and she was falling a lot, as you, I'm sure you remember. And um, I believe it was the first time she went in the hospital over last year was um, because of the UTI. And she, as both of us know a lot of times when a 
an elderly person, especially with other comorbidities, develops an infection, commonly UTI, and it can just drag them down um, overall. Uh, she got extremely weak. And uh, by the time she was ready to come home from the hospital, well, she wasn't ready to come home from the hospital. She went to a rehab facility. And I was happy that she was at the rehab facility. It would give my cousin, her daughter, a break. And also that maybe she could uh, get some therapy and try uh, to keep her mobile. That was a big issue for me that although she had difficulty getting around, she still could. She could use a walker uh, in her room. She didn't use the walker. She was able to get up, go to the bathroom, go, you know, things. So I was just hopeful that she could get enough therapy to bring her back to, to a level where she could at least stay mobile in her own home. Um, unfortunately, she was very, very unhappy with that facility. And it, she left AMA basically after a few days. Two I didn't three, know that. Are you yeah. serious? Yeah. I hadn't I mean, heard that. Well, she demanded, I was there. She was like, I'm leaving. I am not staying here anymore. And, and she was at a relatively nice, like subacute rehab type setting. It wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I've been in a lot of them like you have. And it, it, it wasn't the best. It wasn't the worst. It was a, you know, it was your an, an average Medicare type facility. Um, but she hated it. And she was in a room by herself. She, it was, it was, a, you know, had uh, two beds, but there wasn't anybody in the other bed. Um, she really told them that she was leaving. That's it. And they started getting things together to try to assist her um, to do that. But wait, 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 wait. Did she bring you over there to bail her out? Did you know you were going over there to have that conversation? She told me that she was leaving. And I, I said, well, do you need someone to pick you up? I thought they discharged her. I thought, oh. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. You know? That's, That's clever. Yeah. Why did they discharge her already? She, but anyway, so I go over there and she basically said, I'm not going to stay here anymore. Um, apparently she had had, um, had an episode during the night before where she, I think, had a panic attack. And she had not been sleeping at all there. Um, for I mean, a, a, they brought a chaplain in, and she said that he sat and talked with her for hours, and she enjoyed it. She was that made her calm down, but she just said, "I'm not staying here." So <laughs> it was like a hurry up. We'll try to get things together for you at home thing. She had one thing I regret. She had um, oxygen in the um, facility. They didn't send her home with any oxygen. And I really felt like she needed that uh, at home. And we never could get the orders for it and get it arranged before she ended up in the hospital again. So anyway, long story short, she did go home. She was able to walk. Um, from her bed to the bathroom. Um, 
that was about the extent of how far she could walk, but she could get up and down, sit in her uh, easy chair and watch TV, um, that kind of thing. So after that, she was hospitalized again um, a couple more times uh, because of a UTI. It was uh, repet uh, you know, recurrent UTI. And she would just every time, of course, that she went and she got weaker. And the last time she came home, even though she went to a transitional setting, again, she would not stay there. I guess she maybe stayed a week uh, that time, which really wasn't enough time. Um, but apparently, <laughs> I don't wanna get into the pros and cons of different types of uh, Medicare insurances, but she was told she had run out of her days, her days for uh, rehab. Um, so I don't know if that was true or not, but that's that's the story. She stuck to it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I spent a lot of time with her trying to, um, once she got home, trying to get her switched over to regular traditional Medicare, for which, of course, you don't have to have, um, you're not limited to as short a stay as with the Medicare Advantage programs. Mm -hmm. And especially for things like home health, which I knew she would need, desperately need, if she was to stay at home. Um, so I did get some of that done. Um, and then it was, she fell again, getting up to go to the bathroom. And she said that she then had pain in her hip and her knee. Um, I got her set up with a physician who visited, visits in the home. Then they came out and admitted her and um, did an x-ray and found she hadn't broken anything, but she found it too painful to stand up, which was probably just as well because every time she got up, she seemed to fall. Yeah. So then she wouldn't get up anymore. She did have, I'll take that back. She had a, a bedside commode and uh, some wooden railings that her son-in-law built for her on the side of her bed that were pretty sturdy. So she could manage to stand up with her daughter's help to steady her, turn and sit on the bedside commode. But that was as far as she could go. Um, so that was something anyway, at least she didn't have to have a Foley catheter in, uh, although I don't know if that would have been better for her, but she did not want that. So she was able to get up to go to the bath or to, to use the toilet. Uh, she was not able to use the shower or anything um, for her personal hygiene. So that was a concern of mine. Um, it was difficult getting home health arranged for her because she had a, she had difficulty telling the difference between the visiting physicians and home health and how they work together, what those two different entities could provide for her. So as she, the longer she was um, incapacitated and laying in bed, it, it seemed that her confusion um, increased. 
And that was a telling sign for me because she always had been very sharp. And I would say, Aunt, Aunt Margie, did you call home health? And she would always tell me, I don't have home health, which I knew she did. And I had spoken to the nurse while the nurse was there. So her memory of those things, and my, my cousin would be standing there and say, yeah, mom, you remember the lady that comes on Wednesdays or what? And she had no memory of those things at all. Um, she was unable to use her cell phone to call anyone, apparently except me. <laughs> she, <laughs> she oftentimes had problems using her cell phone. Uh, I tried to get the family to let, you know, put a landline back in because I felt like she could use that, but that didn't happen. So um, I was very concerned about her being bedbound and she was bedbound for five to six weeks at the end. Um, I arranged for home health to send an aide to help bathe her or to bathe her. Uh, fortunately, toward the end, she at least had that. Uh, home health did try to do it. They, they drew labs. Oh, I take that back. They wanted to draw labs. Uh, apparently she did not let them draw labs. And then we had to get a specialty lab company to come out and draw her labs. And it was, it was very difficult because Although she, when I spoke to her, she understood that she needed certain things. But then when that person came to the house, she did not want it. She didn't want anybody there. Spoiler alert, your mom is the same way. Preaching to the choir, I know. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so they would leave because she refused. And then I would be on the phone with them, why didn't you come? They said, oh no, she, she refused. Uh, so that was a, I think being as I am, I have a home health background. I, I realized that that happens often. Um, and we get, would get phone calls from the family members asking us, why aren't you coming out like you're supposed to, to see my mother or my father. And, the reason because they refused to let us in. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that her, um, her confusion was at that point complicated things because um, her older daughter, though she has some handicaps, she does work. So she was not there a lot of the time. And uh, she was so Aunt Margie was by herself and that it just made getting what I knew that she needed more difficult to actually attain that. Had you or, or your cousin ever talked to her about placement in a nursing facility? I mean, I know that the skilled rehab didn't yeah. go well times two, but um, what was that discussion like? Well, she had told me on a couple of occasions that she was concerned about how her situation 
was affecting her daughter. And she didn't want to, as they say, be a burden. Uh, and she felt that maybe it would be better if she went in a nursing home. And I was said, yes, that probably would be better. When we can find a place. Then when she actually went to a nursing home rehab, she wouldn't stay there. So that's what part of what I mean. She would intellectually agree that a certain course was what was needed and she was gonna do that. But when it came right down to rubber meeting the road, it was a no-go. So anyway, at the end, um, my cousin called me about five, six o'clock in the morning one morning and said that she was in the hospital again and she wasn't, I didn't know she had gone in. Nobody had called me, but apparently um, she was having a lot of stomach pain and they had called EMS during the night and they took her in. By the time I found out about it, she was in ICU and my cousin wasn't real um, sure of what was going on with her. Um, I mean, diagnostically, but the doctor had called her and said that her mother was not doing well and she probably should come up there. So she called me and said, what do you think? I said, I think when the doctor calls you and says that, we better get up there. So I went and picked her up. And when I got there, Aunt Margie was unconscious and intubated. And uh, what, I was, what I found out was that um, she had um, a gastric ulcer, a bleeding ulcer. And they had done the um, ablation. The embolization or yeah. emb ablation. Uh, yeah. uh, the night before and stopped it for a little while, but then it started again. And by the time I got up there, she was losing more blood than they could give to her. And I think they had already given her six or seven pints of blood when I got up there. Maybe more, I don't know, but at least that much. And that, it wasn't long after that that the, the physician came in and he basically said that he was trying to get a radiologist who would come to the hospital to do the, another procedure on her. Um, but when he spoke to the radiologist, the radiologist told him he didn't think it would do any good. Um, they were, of course, her blood pressure was falling out and they were giving her different vasopressors to try to keep her blood pressure somewhere near the normal range. Um, but I realized after knowing her history and everything that was going on, that this was not gonna end well. And apparently that finally with that visit with the physician, it 
became clear to my cousin also that it wasn't going to end well. He said, uh, we can keep doing this for as long as we can to keep her alive, or we can stop now. It would be my cousin's decision. And that's when I called you because I know that my cousin and Aunt Margie so loved and respected you and appreciated your opinion and your advice. And as you mentioned last week, my cousin was so worried about, will, will my family think that I should have kept trying, that I should have kept her alive as long as medically sustainable? <laughs> and I said, would you like to talk to Becky? And she said, yes. So that's when I called you. And you spoke to her for a little while and then you came up there. So that's when our experience coincided there. Well, thank you for filling in a lot of the gaps from that. I will say um, as a physician that's got a lot of experience in brain injury, something I always think about, even with you, you, you talking about it, that I don't, I don't know that there's a, 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 this is a common way to think about it, but anytime you have somebody that is in her age group and had all the comorbidities that she had, um, including diabetes and things like that, those, the, the brain tissue does not sustain low blood pressure very well. And the deficits that come from even short periods of relatively low blood pressure are very pronounced. And, and it, it can feel like in the middle of a bleeding episode, like, you know, stop the bleeding or, you know, that that's going to get you out of the woods. But at that point, the, the prolonged low blood pressure issues uh, w sit so um, differently with me because of the impact they have on quality of life. And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, in, in medicine, we, we can't get it always precisely right. And and sometimes you can extend a little bit of chronological life. Um, and I worry sometimes that we are, are we doing that because it's what's right for that person who's experiencing the suffering and who has to live with an anoxic brain injury on the other end of this possibly. And again, I, I am sure that this is not a normal way to think. Uh, and I, in the middle of a crisis, you're not thinking about hypotension and, and brain injury. But I, I sometimes having stood at that intersection, always wonder how much of it is us wanting to secondarily um, avoid the grief reaction. Um, and you can get very involved with what you think you can control, which is the blood pressure and the heart rate and the, the blood glucose levels. And, um, and there's always obviously a, a time and a place for that, but at some point, I, I wonder when maybe subconsciously it transitions from um, making the, the best decisions you can as a surrogate to what I think would be a very natural response, which is also trying to avoid uh, the the pain and the grief that will come with this eventual outcome. Yeah. And what I noticed being up there with you and uh, and her daughter was as much as I felt like it would be like that, it wasn't, it was, I would say, um, a very special time. She made so many jokes. Uh, I, I, 
<laughs> I don't know. I just so giggle at some of the things that she said, um, even with her mom there. But I thought that's a why why not share that with her while she was you know still with us? And I, and and I knew Margie enough that she would have laughed too. Like that was yeah, she yeah. was not a a uh, you know I don't know what the right word is, but a vain person. I mean, she always, I think, appreciated good satire. And um, and anyway, so I, I think, you know, my fear was we would go up there and that um, your cousin would, uh, you know, not be able to do this. And and I, I mean, you have to, like, what was I thinking? Like, what are you going to not do? What are you going to walk away? Are you going to yeah. not support your mom? Of course, you're going to do that. And um and I just, uh, as I said in the podcast last week, I mean, carry it as an honor to be there. And I just have, you know, such a different view of what, you know, what I consider exit ramps in life. And, you know, <laughs> I almost feel like it's like, this might be an earlier exit than I thought, but this is sure a better exit than the next one, which would be, you know, some prolonged state of extreme suffering and bed sores and repeated pneumonias and, you know, um, and so I, I, I think of it just sort of uh, from a different perspective and I'm going to allow some grace that maybe I won't feel that way if it's you or my dad. Um, but I, you hope I, you want me to make fun of you? No, I'm just yes. kidding. <laughs> well, no, uh, I want you to, you know, uh, you use the word joyous and I know we were both there together and people may misunderstand what, what that word is meaning to you and to me, but um, I mean, my cousin also cried. Right. And so it wasn't as if we were all standing around joking about my aunt dying. It was um, to acknowledge that this was happening, which it was a huge step for her and for me, that this was the end for Aunt Margie. And all of my my mom's siblings had been alive until that day that was going to be, and I knew I would have to talk to my mom and that yeah. was difficult, but we have always used that type of banter with each other to get through difficult situations. You and I, my cousins, my family. So for us, it was natural. We would be upset and crying one moment. And the next moment, well, I remember <laughs> the next day was Mother's Day. Remember that? Yeah. And the day before this happened was Aunt Margie's birthday. Yes. And um, you had handed me a card that her grandchildren had written to her yeah. for her birthday. And I couldn't finish reading it. I got too upset reading it because it just was so beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. And also, um, we were talking to Aunt Margie about these things. Yes. The, for all we knew, she could hear us and understand us. So we were including her in what we were talking about. And we did finish reading that card to her. And I hope she heard it. You had to read it. I couldn't finish reading it. <laughs> well, I read it and we got through it. And do you remember what uh, my cousin said? Well, I think, you know, since her Karen, her sister had passed a couple of years before, she said, I think mom wanted to spend Mother's Day with Karen. 
Yeah, that got me too. Yeah. Um, it was, I, I found it uh, for people who are going to learn a lot about my family through the podcast. And I'm actually, I think that's part of this, right? I, I, I want to be real and transparent. Um, Margie definitely represents a very, very, uh, very small segment of my family that leans a little to the left and uh, politically. And uh, <laughs> it's always been funny because 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 Cindy said, I can't believe mom's not going to live to see Donald Trump go to prison. And y'all kind of hugged each other. And she said, at least she saw him get indicted. And I just could not. Well, that's, you know, Margie, that was a big topic between Aunt Margie and I. Since I am, I'm of the same mind as Aunt, my Aunt Margie on that. So we would always be talking about the latest information on Donald Trump. Um, I, was like, I wonder if the nurses are overhearing any of this or maybe everybody has their own way and yeah um, well and I think it wasn't as big a surprise to me even though I um that's the first time I had ever physically been with someone when they passed holding mm -hmm. her hand when she passed that was my first experience of that however in my home health background, I worked with a lot of hospice nurses and we would have case conference when I, I was the director of clinical services, sit, talking with them. They shared their experience as each patient passed. They would talk about that patient at the next case conference and what happened. And I learned then that there are as many different ways for that situation to go as there are patients and families. And I agree with you that it was, I felt an honor for us to be able to be there with her, which she left us. And it, she had told my cousin on the way to the hospital the night before, or that night she went in, she said, if this is my time to go, I want you to know that I'm ready. So that was a great solace. Right, right. And I feel very sure that Aunt Margie knew deep down that she wasn't going to live through that hospitalization. Did you tell me a, there was some discussion you had where she told you she was afraid of dying? That oh, she was no, afraid. She was afraid of dying. But she, well, when I talked to her about hospice, because after the visiting physician had been out to see her and I spoke to him on the phone, he said, have you talked to her about hospice? And I said um, that I would. So I, when next time I was there, I did talk to her and I told her what that meant and what they could do for her and her situation and how it might be um, best for her to make, take that option at right now. I, you know, like as you and I both know, my stepmother was on hospice three or four times. And it doesn't mean you're going to die once you're admitted to hospice. It just, you need that palliative care. They can give you a lot more concentrated care um, and provide more services in that, under that Medicare benefit or insurance benefit. And she agreed with all of that intellectually. 
And I said, do you want me to have a hospice representative come and speak to you about it? And she said, no, not yet. Because I don't, I'm not ready to admit that I'm dying. I thought that was a very truthful answer to me. And uh, again, I told her, you don't have to, you have to have a terminal diagnosis, but you don't have to die because you go on hospice. But that if she reached a point where she would like to talk to him, to let me know and I would get them out there to talk to her. So that was where, um, she didn't say she was afraid. She just didn't want to admit it to herself. And what came after that comment? Well, that was... Um, or was um, that the end of the sentence? That, that was a completed thought? No, no then... I just left it with her. Okay. That yeah. if she wanted, when she felt ready, I would have them come and talk to her. I would contact them for her. And we, she never brought it up again. I, I didn't either because she, to the end, I mean, she knew what she was doing. So uh, that was her decision to make if she wanted to make it. And there, you know, that's something that I think is important to discuss because at, as long as she was mentally competent, she had the right to live the life that she wanted to live and hopefully the death that she wanted also. However, there was also on the other hand, when she would uh, be forgetful or refuse services that she had told me that she wanted, that's a hard thing, I think, being from the caregiver point of view, whether you are respecting her wishes or whether she's not understanding what she's doing. That's a hard distinction to make. And I spent a lot of time worrying about that and trying to talk to her about it, but I never did come to a really good um, resolution to that. What I wanna deep dive is about a week before this happened and I discussed it on the podcast was, I, that was the most distressed I think I had ever seen you on this topic. Um, yes. And when well, I, that was with your, your grandmother in the country during that time, I think I was at least as stressed. Oh, her life. but that was yes. long. Time That's a whole ago. other podcast. <laughs> yeah, you, were a, okay. you were a child still at that point, but yeah. So that, that wasn't my first rodeo. Okay. <laughs> so this most recent rodeo you had. Yes. Um, so this was just back in May, um, and we had spent that Sunday uh, talking a bit about it. And when I was trying to deep dive with you, what your experience was, um, and I've never broken this down with you. This is you'll you'll hear this for the first time. What it made me think of was this imagery of you as a little girl developing a relationship with this this family member that you cared for. And it was reciprocated in a way that you felt close and that maintained, even if you weren't in close contact throughout your adult life. Um, but it's almost like a little piece of you, almost like a little jar with like fireflies was is in that person because of what they meant to you yes. when you were a kid. 
And there's, they always have that jar. It doesn't matter how, where they go, how far they go, what they do in life, you know, what their political leanings are. None of that matters, right? That jar is in them. And when um, you get drawn further into proximity to this person, you're almost triangulated with the, the little jar that they have inside of them that's, that's you're caring for them, that you wanting the best for them. And then as you've articulated, the decisions they're making that you feel um, are not your version in your head of what you want for the person that has that jar. And when I really pushed and pushed you on this, um, and you were gracious enough to let me do that because you know I'm interested in this, you said, I don't want that for her. I don't want her to be without a bath. I don't want her to be in dirty sheets. She, that's not, that can't be her, that she can't be treated that way. And it was a very visceral, like, and I said, what is it? What is it? What is it? What is, what is bothering? Is it bothering you that she's declining home health? Well, you know, she can do that. Is it bothering you that she's, you know, confused or, you know, getting uh, mixed up between these two services? Well, you know, that happens. What actually seemed to bother you the most, the most visceral reaction was how she was, her body was physically being cared for in the conditions in which she resided. And what ended up happening is you got juxtaposed with this intense need to protect her from that physical experience and the, the, the setting, the, the depressing setting of the room and the trap, the I've got to get up and then just pivot over to the bathroom and get back in my bed and um, really having some difficulty accepting these limitations. And I would say, as is very common, maybe some unrealistic hopes or thoughts that she would start walking again, right? And uh, what I saw was you weren't able to go, nor legally able to go make those decisions on her behalf and say, you must get a shower today. You must change your sheets. You must do this. And even if you had tried, she could decline that. And then I feel yeah. like it's this really interesting suspension of that firefly jar. And it's there. And it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how thick they are, but it's there. And it's like how, what a painful, or what can be a very painful, stressful experience of us trying to sit well with ourselves for those people that we have that relationship with. Um, and then the way it happens in my head is, well, if that's that person and, and you're committed to them and you care that much about them, then there is no limit to what you should do for them. And there are practical limits, which I talk a lot about in the podcast, but in your head at the moment, that's your firefly, right? And you're you're like, okay, well, whatever time it takes, whatever money it takes, however many miles I got to drive, how many we got to do this. And, and at some point it just becomes in almost um, oppositional to the direction that they're going and the pain that it is to, to be a part of that, but then also needing to stay in the game because that's what you do for your fireflies. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. How, 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 is that, so tell me like, is that how your brain felt or can you, do you, have you had time to reflect on that? I think that's a, that's a good description. Uh, now that you put it that way, I have, of course, didn't, I'm not good, as good with metaphors as you are <laughs> for sure. <laughs> that was, um, that's a good way to look at it. I, 
I remember saying that to you. Um, maybe this will illustrate it. I know um, when it occurred to me that because she could not get out of bed and because her daughter has some limits as to what she's physically able to do, um, that I, I would look at her skin to make sure that there weren't any bed sores, no pressure ulcers. And fortunately she did not develop any, but um, when I realized that she was on the same sheets continuously for weeks, this was about the third weekend that I finally, and I talked to her, I said, let me get, see if we can get some clean sheets for you. And maybe I figured if I could get Steven over there, we could roll her and change the sheets while she was in bed, right? And she said, well, I just have one sheet. I know why her, she is not poverty stricken, although she would have, at that point in time, she qualified for Medicaid. Um, and of course her daughter would have gotten sheets for her had she asked um, her, but she was not that type of person. She would push me to accept money if I took her to the doctor's office, which I wouldn't do. And then I would find like $10 in my purse you know, something that she never wanted to take advantage of anybody or not pay her own way. Um, but she had said, I, I just have the one sheet. And I just, that hit me so hard for some reason. And I remember I went and bought two sets of sheets for her bed and brought them back. And I said, um, the aide is coming in the morning. And when she bathes you, she can change the sheets for you. So here's the sheets, for, you know, which set would you like to put on there? So a couple days later, I went back over there and she had gotten a bed bath, but she had the same sheet on her bed. So what I wanted for her wasn't necessarily what she felt like she could accept. And that was not, I realized that's not under my control. She has access to these sheets now. If she wants them, she can have them on her bed. So that's what I mean, just that constant, how far do you push? When do you say, yes, ma'am, I understand that's your decision. Um, So yeah, that maybe that will explain a little bit. Yeah, and I I think it does, um, and I think it illustrates a very common conundrum, which is the first assumption is that they don't have the access or information needed, mm -hmm. and so you think I'll drop a, a booklet off, I'll buy a new sheet, I'll um, install a landline, and sometimes that's just sort of a the facade, the initial issue underneath that, which is they visit, they, they can't even cognitively conceive of the movement it would take to replace the sheets or the burden they would feel they were putting on the aid to replace the sheets, which is weird because 
her sister, which is my grandmother, which is your mom that lives with me, has a weird thing about sheets as well. <laughs> and not only certain people in the earth can change the sheets because everybody else is put out to do so. But um, but anyway, so going back to um I think it can be a little bit of like a, a you know, sort of a, a front for uh, not an intentional front, but just sort of this initial pass is, oh, they just don't have access. They don't know how to buy it. They just don't have the information. And then what can be underneath that uh, is also sometimes a cognitive issue. Like, yeah. I don't know how to use that. I don't know how to, I'm embarrassed or I don't know how to tell you, I don't know how to use this. Um, I mean, I'm, a, you know, uh <laughs> guilty of this myself having you know bought a printer from my grandmother at the time and it was one of those like all-in-one four-in-one printers that never saw a printed page until it was returned to me and she said it was far too complicated uh and I was so proud of myself for buying that printer I thought she could just print photos this is a long time ago anyway but but it was a good lesson for me and I think about that printer sometimes of that 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 sort of mismatched intentions and wanting to take care of somebody and oh, you like pictures. Well, why don't I get you a photo printer? That's super nice that you're never apparently, uh, you know, not going to be able to use. And it's kind of, it's humbling too. Right. And, and I want to make sure, I mean, I talk a lot about aging parents and significant elders, you know, I'm under no illusion that I'm not going to be one myself. So I, I'm very sensitive to that, talking about them as if they're some different tribe. I mean, they are us, right. They are a different season of us. And how we, how we take care of ourselves and take care of them is the whole crux of this entire project um, or how we navigate that if there's more difficulties, that there's relationship strains. I mean, you talk about somebody that you loved very dearly um, and uh, I will tease a future podcast with you about your experiences with a father who you had a completely different sentiment for. So you're going to let me bring you back to talk about that. <laughs> I will because of one thing. When even when you were a child, you told me that you liked to you liked talking to old people. Mm. And I said, really? How come? He said, because they have a lot of wisdom. You can learn a lot from them. And it are you was, sure I said that? I don't remember saying you that. You did. Okay. You were maybe ten years. I'll run ago. with it. And I, you did like spending time with the older people in our family, more than any of my other kids, that's for sure. More than I think was typical for a child. You, um, you sat and talked to them, which is different from going to visit them. So I'm sorry if I never told you that before. Because no, I didn't I know that. Look back at it and see what you're doing now. And there's a there's a clear line all the way through. Well, and you know, I my grandparents on my dad's side lived walking distance from us. And yes. I spent a lot of time with them and, and they ended up passing when I was in high school. Um, and my grandmother, who's your mother and lives with me now, I mean, obviously we've spent seven years together living 
together. Yeah. So yeah, I would agree. And it's funny you say that because after I had my own kids, I was like, kids don't know anything. They're, they're not, <laughs> there are some, I think some people who are really drawn to small children and I'm like, they have nothing to add <laughs> to, to my understanding of the world. Um, and I, I do love my kids, you know that, but um, I've always found that that sort of me being informed as a middle-aged adult is is more exciting to talk to people that have been through it. Um, And uh, so I I think we have a lot more conversations to come, uh, a lot more podcasts to do. So hopefully you'll be a regular. Um, And I just appreciate you coming on and um, talking to me about that shared experience. I don't think people do that enough. I mean, that was a very powerful experience we had unexpectedly together. Um, And I appreciate the chance to walk through it and for you to to share. And I know Aunt Margie was aware of this project I was doing and supportive of it. And so I'm hoping um, that she is listening to this and feeling um, proud that she's able to contribute to the conversation. Um, I think she'd be uh, happy and I'm I'm glad that we can share her story and, and what she meant to us. So thank you so much for joining me. I will uh, call upon you again soon. Do it. I'll, I'll be here. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. I am here to let you know I can be found on RebeccaTapiaMD.com. You can come over there to learn about my new course launching this summer, dealing with mindset for aging parents, getting prepared all the good stuff, sharing my opinions and life lessons. Uh, Also could just join my email list so I can share more about my thoughts about these podcasts and more insights there. Thank you so much for being here.